2 Peter 3. There are two underlying themes that run through our text uh, this morning under one big banner. The big banner is this, that you and I are to be watchmen, watch women, watch students who stand guard over two very important things in our lives. The first one is we are to stand guard over our character or our integrity or our righteousness and holiness. We do not get to just live as we please, but we are to watch over the righteousness of our heart um, as one standing guard. And then secondly, we are to be ones who are standing guard and over the truth in regard to righteousness and the things that are there. And this has been a consistent theme of Peter in this second letter. I think I've said uh, several weeks ago, but just want to kind of go ahead and start uh, sharing with it, with you. Uh, The Sunday after Labor Day weekend in September, we're going to begin a word-for-word walk through the Gospel of John, and we will... um, just start that process. It may take us three to four to five years or so to do that, but there's just so many tremendous things to look at uh, in the Gospel of John, and so uh, we have two weeks left in Second Peter. So we have today, and the next week we will finish up in verse 18. And so Peter, all through this, has been saying, listen, you've got to guard your heart. You've got to guard your integrity. You've got to guard what's important in regard to your righteousness and holiness. And then he has been reminding us all the way through this that God's people must stand for the truth. And I want to show you this theme that has run through this letter. And so go back to chapter 1 just for a moment. And I want us to read the verses that have permeated this second letter of Peter in regard to um, our guarding the truth and the importance of the truth of God's Word. Look at verse 4. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, that is His Word, the precious and great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. And I think what he's talking about there, he's going to write this, he's written to them, so that after he's dead, he knows that his time is coming, they will be able to go back and they will be able to read and they will be able to see things. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter goes through and he shares, we've written to you what we saw and what we experience. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Look at 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, speaking of the false teachers. And because of them, the way of truth, the scriptural truth, the written truth, will be blasphemed. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. 
This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Reminder of what? He says in verse 2. Two places. That you would remember the predictions or the writings of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Last week we saw this. But according to His promise, His word, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now let's read 14 through 17, and this will be our text today. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So I want to talk today under the topic of since you are waiting for these things. What things? Well, let me just remind us. So he's been dealing with since you are waiting for the second coming of Jesus, since you are waiting for the establishment of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom here on earth, since you are waiting for at the end of the age, God is going to, on the day of Christ, He's going to melt away the heavens. He's going to melt away the earth. He's going to do away with the old order of everything that's there. And He's going to bring about this new heavens and this new earth. Since you are waiting for these things to come in the future. Watch this. Future reality so great that it impacts how we live today. Since you are waiting for these things to come, how do you live today? And so He's closing out this letter reminding us As we wait for something unbelievable to come, how should that impact the way we live today? And the first thing he says to them is this. He says, therefore, and he gives them a name, that it gives an identity to them, an identity to us. And he says, therefore, beloved, therefore, in light of all of these things I've been telling you, false teachers are going to come. God's going to deal with them. You stay connected with the truth. You walk in what God has said. You stand there. He's coming again. Jesus is coming. He's establishing a kingdom. He's going to do away with this world here that's full of pain and heartache and sorrow and death and separation and hopelessness and brokenness. He's going to do away with the old order. And we talked about it last week. And according to Isaiah chapter 66, this order of things that we see here today, all of the pain, all of the shame, all of the heartache, we will no longer in the new heavens and the new earth even remember it. We will not be able to go back and go, gosh, remember when I was 50 years old and I did that thing that so damaged my family and damaged my integrity. We are not going to, praise His name, even remember the stupidity that we were in the way we lived in this life, what He is bringing is so great. And so in light of what is coming, where we will live, how do we live today? And the first thing He says is this, therefore, beloved, this word beloved means divinely loved ones. 
since you are loved by an eternal God who is perfect, there are some things that you must do to live your life in light of what has been done for you. And watch this, everyone. The basis of our motivation living in light of what's coming and living in light of, of, of what He's going to do, what He has done, is that we have, we have been rescued. We are, we are brought into the family of God, and so therefore now we are divinely loved ones. We are... We are free from the bondage of this world. We are free from the hopelessness that is connected to the life here. We are citizens out of this world of another kingdom. We are loved by an eternal God. And this eternal God has perfectly given every bit of himself to us. All of his love, all of his patience, all of his divine attributes, all of his great mercy. He has given everything, every moment, every day. We are never out of that reality. And he's given it to people who have been orphaned, brought into the kingdom, now children, now a part of the family. And he did so, so perfectly to people like us who at times in this faith relationship with him, we just kind of go, whatever, God. We're not moved by it. His perfect divine attributes, his perfect divine love has been given to people who do not love him back perfectly and that just says to us how perfect his love is that it was not conditioned on whether or not you and I could respond rightly back and that is good news today if you're sitting in this room if you are sitting you are sitting in this room are you not that is good news he's given everything there's not anything that you and I lack he said that in chapter one he has given all things that we need for life and godliness. We're not lacking anything. We're not waiting on anything else. We have been given everything. And so he says to you and I, you are the beloved of God. And what a privilege it is to be different than the world. And the world doesn't love us. The world doesn't get us. The world is never going to get us. The world is going to continue to try to eradicate anything connected with Christianity. And Jesus is not interested in any of that at all. And the standard of the word is one of the things that, that you and I embrace as our life and our passion. And the world hates us because of that. I want you to go to John chapter 17. We're going to look at a couple places. So go back to John chapter 17 just for a moment. And I want to share one of the beautiful privileges that we have um, to be the beloved. And Jesus is in the upper room. And in John 17, he gives us this unique picture as he's praying for the apostles but there's also some great implications for our lives as well John 17 verse 6 here's a part of what it means to be the beloved he said I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word folks today listen to this we belong to the Father. The Father gave us to the Son. And we belong to both of them. We are there. That is our identity. We belong to God. Look at 7. And now, that they, and now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then Jesus says, and I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In case you're not noticing this, we belong to God. We belong to Him. He is our God. We are His people. And then he says in 11, And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. So we are in His name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, he says in 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Look up here for a moment, folks. I struggle with this. Just want to be honest with you. This world is so broken. Sometimes I'm so broken and joy just seems to be the furthest thing. I can't find it. I don't know if that's the way with you. We lie awake at night. We can't find it. It's not there. But I want you to hear what Jesus said. It can be known and it can be fulfilled in us. Look what he says there. I have, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, and for, back up to 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' joy can be ours. Now look what it says there in 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. This is just the reality for us, folks. Listen, we walk by a different standard, by a different idea, by truth, God's word from God's heart, spoken from God's eternal sovereign mind. It has come to us through men carried along by the Holy Spirit who wrote as God led them. It's come to us in written form. God has preserved his word that's come to us. It's without error. There's no doubts about it. It is clear. It is certain. We can stand on it. And so we do so. And listen, it's just always been the case in people of the world the philosophies of the world, the religions of the world, they're going to hate us. You know why? Because we love His Word. And so that's just the reality. And we want it, our flesh wants it to be opposite of that. We want the world to applaud us. The world's not going to applaud us. The world hated Jesus so much that they put Him on two big sticks and put Him in the ground and hated Him. Because of the things that he said. So this is the reality for us. So how do we navigate and live in such a way knowing that the world is going to hate us? And so Peter says to these group of people, here's the first way you do this. You know your identity and your identity is this. You are the divinely loved ones of God. It doesn't matter 
what the government says. It doesn't matter what this religion says. It doesn't matter what this cult does. It doesn't matter what they have to say about things. You need to know what God has to say. And God says this, I have so loved the world that I gave my one and only son and that whosoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting eternal life. And so God has made his statement over our life. You are the divinely loved ones. And so our motivation now for guarding the integrity of our lives in godliness and holiness comes from that we have been redeemed and it's just unbelievable and it causes us to worship and to sing and to lift our hands and to walk in obedience and to say no to temptation because we know now the motivation for us is that we know him and he's called us to draw near to him and so he says listen i just want to remind you in light of all these things that are going to come remind you you are the divinely loved ones god has called you to be in relationship with what an amazing reality that is secondly we must be waiting diligently living as a sacrifice to the lord look what he says in 14 so he says therefore beloved since you are waiting for these all these things are going to come be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace let me just talk about several things here that are really important first one is this is focused waiting we must have focused waiting it's coming when's it coming i don't know when it's coming it's coming he's coming back and he's coming and so there's a focus we talked about it last week there's a mental connection with this that we live our lives in light of knowing that he's coming and so we focus on it secondly this focusing on something that's coming that's not here yet doesn't say to you and i hey just don't do anything just be idle no, it's, it's a focused waiting that is moving, that is moving in a direction. So we're not just lounging around doing nothing, but we are walking in obedience. Three times in Second Peter, this letter, he has called the believers to be diligent. Let me tell you what the word diligent means. It means to hurry on, give zeal, give energy. It's kind of like this. Experienced it this week. Last Saturday night. Big storm blows up. My back fence hangs on strong until the last gust and just over. Well, that's got to be done with because you've got to have a fence, we've learned, because our dogs jump down into our neighbor's backyard and the fence is, the wall's too big and I have to jump down and get them and pick them back up and I'm tired of doing that, so get a fence. And so... Eight post holes had to dig by hand this week. I don't know if you've done that lately. Have you ever had a post hole digger? And just do this over and over and over again. And you can tell it's done my guns pretty good this morning in my workout. I am so sore. I'm just really sore from all of that. But eight post holes we've had to dig. And it's energy, sweat. Watch this. This is our flesh. Our flesh wants a faith that doesn't give any energy, doesn't have to do anything, wants it to be comfortable, smooth, easy. But if you want to know Christ in depth, it takes energy. And so Peter says, listen, in a world that hates you because you love 
God and you love His Word, you need to know this. As you're waiting, you give energy to your faith. You energize your faith by pursuing God. And, 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 and He calls us here to be diligent in developing Christian character. Look with me in chapter 1 of Second Peter. He says, it, he says it three times here. In the first one, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, he says this. Uh, let me get there myself. Here we go. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. So you make effort. You do something. Not to earn something, but because we want to know him and we want to pursue him. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, verse chapter 1, be all the more diligent. Same word. Be all the more diligent, all the more giving energy to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And then you come to the third calling. So there's a focus moving where we're diligent in developing our Christian character. We're diligent in confirming our calling and our election, seeing that it is certain that we belong to Him. And thirdly, since you are waiting for these things, you be diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish and found at peace. Now, this marks our culture today. Everybody wants to be found to be famous. Everybody wants to do something to be caught on video so it'll go viral, get a little monetary gain, get a little fame, get a little traction out of that. You see this all the time in social media circles is that things are done so that we can be found by others. Listen to this. He, Peter says, listen, believers. Listen to me, believers. In a world that hates you, God is, his eyes, Second Chronicles says, out of First Chronicles, one of the Chronicles, I don't remember which one, chapter 16. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so that he may strengthen them. So right now in this room today, right now all over the earth today, the eyes of the Lord are roaming, looking for people. And when God comes to certain places, He finds people whose hearts are devoted to Him. It's the same idea that Peter's talking about here. Watch this. We want to be found by God. And when God finds us, and, and we are walking in relationship with Him, when God looks at our lives in the moments of our day, in our week, in our month, in our years, in our, in our lifetime... When we want to be found by God, we want to be found in two ways, without blemish and without spot or blameless. These are critical things, and, and so I want to talk about those just for a moment. This word without spot means exactly what it says. Without, it means spotless. It was a word that they used to use back in the day to describe animals that were brought for sacrifice. They had to be whole. They had to be pure. And if the animal had a cut on it, had a scab on it, so really the word for scab, spotless, you don't want a scabby sacrifice that's, that's, that's messed itself up and it's not pure. And so he says this, he says, when God finds you, you want to be living the kind of life where you're not marked by sinful decisions and things that you are doing that mark you as not pure. Not only that, you want to be without, you want to be blameless. Um, and this word blameless means this, that not open to a charge of living in a way that is not holy and not righteous. And so watch, listen, this is critical. Peter says, listen, you want to you live in such a way 
that you, are, you remember you are His. You are the beloved of God. You are divinely loved by Him. Not only that, but you want to be living as a sacrifice. And what that looks like is this, is that you're without spot, you're without blame. Nobody can be pointing out you. And again, this is not a one-time bad decision. This is living a life where people can go, gosh, Christians aren't like that. They're not supposed to be like that. So we want to live in such a way, not where there's not a mistake because we're going to make some mistakes, but we don't want to live a life where it's opposite of the gospel and people can go, that, or other believers can go, that's not Christianity. That's not what a Christ follower looks like. And so the call from Peter is in a world that hates you and there's so much confusion, so much false teaching, there's so much persecution that's there, you remember you're loved of God. You are guarded by God. You are protected by God. God is for you. Not only that, but in light of that, you lay your life down as a sacrifice. Now I want you to go to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. I want us to see something there before we come back. Romans 12. Verse 1 and 2. We want to be found by Him. How do we want to be found by Him? Without spot, without blemish. We want to be blameless. And we want to be at peace. By the way, as you're turning to Romans 12, if God finds you and I on a Wednesday afternoon at 2, and He sees that we are faithfully living for the glory of His name before other people, and before him, and he finds us that we're without spot and we're without blame. Boy, there's a peace that comes knowing this, that, that as God looks at us, he sees that our heart longs for purity. And we want to be found by God in those moments of the day at 1 a.m. in the morning when a temptation may come. Whatever the case is, we want to be the kind of people that when God finds us, that there's a purity and a holiness to our life. And when we know that that's true, there's a peace that settles in there. So when Peter talks about peace here, he's not talking about absence of conflict. He's talking about a rest that comes because we are walking in integrity and in, and in with, with God in holiness. So look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to Paul in these words. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? What does that sacrifice look like? Notice the third W, the consistency of the same theme. Paul writing here, Peter in Second Peter. This sacrifice must be holy and acceptable to God. He's not wanting... Uh, an imperfect sacrifice. He's wanting a sacrifice that is laying its life down, saying this, I honor you, God, by walking in integrity of holiness and truth. And so I'm laying my life down. Even though knowing we're not perfect, I'm laying my life down, a living sacrifice, holy, holy, loving His Word, walking in His Word saying no to this and saying yes to Him. We lay our lives down, holy and acceptable. Our, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Look what it says there in the last part of verse 1. Don't miss this, church. Which is your spiritual what? What word? Worship. Well, I thought we just worshiped a while ago when the band was up here. 
we have so messed this up and I don't even know how to correct it. I don't even know if we can correct it in the West. We think that we use this word, okay, um, worship is music. That's basically how we've kind of lowered it all down thing in our vernacular and how we talk about things. Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what worship is. Worship is I am laying my life down as a living, not a dead, a living sacrifice. And I'm laying it down in holiness because that's what God accepts. I lay it down. By the way, watch this. Beauty, good theology as well. We are never going to get this faith perfect this side of heaven. So how can we lay our lives down in such a way that's acceptable to the Father? You know how? Because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus covering us, we couldn't offer any kind of sacrifice to Him that's acceptable to Him. And so it's through Jesus, the writer of Hebrews talks about this, we make this offer. And so watch, worship is not singing. He's, Paul's not saying, hey, man, lay your life down and sing. No, lay your life down in holiness. How do we know what holiness is? We know what holiness is in this. And that's why Peter, all through here, is contending for the battle for the truth of God's Word. Because if we don't know His Word, we're not going to walk in holiness because we're just absent-minded in, in regard to not knowing what we're supposed to do. So Paul says, you lay your lives down in holiness, walking in purity. And then he says this, and here's what happens. You do not conform to this world, but you renew your mind. Get your mind connected to know the truth of God's Word so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we, spirited worship happens in holiness and pursuit of Him. Boy, you could sing all day with the prettiest voice and it could be the furthest thing from worship if the heart is not right. And so, worship, I don't know how we get, I don't know how we correct this. Worship is not singing. It's a part of worship. Just a small part. We lay our lives down, Peter says, Paul says as well. We lay our lives down. We're found by him to be holy and acceptable. And I tell you what I just said to you this morning is not said a lot of times because the aim of the American church is let's make sure people feel good. And I just want to remind you and I today, our hearts are deceptively and and just full of deceit. They're desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And our only hope is for God to do a work to raise the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel and put it all together. Broken people put together, God uses to the glory of his name. So then he says this, Peter says, thirdly, go back to... Second Peter. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. First part of verse 15. You count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Thirdly, it just means this. Share the gospel as we wait. Share the gospel as we wait for these things to come. And as we wait for all of this to come, 
we go on mission. We witness to others while there's still opportunity. Again, we have a team that is going to DR and Sierra Leone. In a few weeks, some of us are going to the Ukraine. In the fall, we're going to go to a country in Asia. And if we get to go on all those mission trips, and if we get to this afternoon, like yes, uh, Friday, I know it doesn't take long, but um, people like Keith and I, we get haircuts. Right, Keith? We get haircuts. It doesn't take long to do it. I shared the gospel with a lady uh, who cut my hair on Friday, and I was hoping she'd be here today. She's not here. She's living at the Samaritan Inn. Um, but shared with her, and and going to go back by and see her this week, and Say hi to her and hopefully, so we, if we share with our hair cutter person, whatever they're called, they're called a hair cutter person in my world, okay, um, or we go on mission, if we get to go, if we get to share, it's because, watch this, of the great patience of God, and listen to me church, his perceived procrastination is never to be seen as in action. He's delaying. Why? So that people can come into the kingdom. And that's active. That's not passive. So God's delaying His coming and His judgment. It's to be seen as a glorious expression of His long-suffering character. And so, so God is being unbelievably patient. And this patience should be seen as salvation because people are coming into the kingdom. And then Peter writes something I think is absolutely fascinating because of the way that I'm wired. And I love God's word. So look at the next part of verse 15. And this is the fourth thing I want us to see this morning. He writes, Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, I think in those words of Peter, a tremendous insight into the spiritual maturity of the Apostle Peter. Now, that Peter and Paul were ministry partners together at times. There were times that they were Together, we know in Acts chapter 15, they were at the same uh, conference, the Jerusalem conference that was there as they were dealing with things. They shared the same ministry partner. Anybody know, a bit of trivia, the same ministry partner that Peter and Paul had. Starts with an S. Silas, okay, tricked y'all. They shared it. Some of you may, you've had it in your head. So Paul and Silas and Peter and Silas did ministry together. But there was a time in their past where there was a conflict between Peter and Paul. And Peter was living in sin and doing something that was unbiblical, and Paul called him out on it. You're fine to look with me at it, but this is Galatians 2, 11. So what happened was there was a church that began in Antioch, and Peter came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Antioch had a bunch of Gentile believers in it and Jewish believers. So they sent some representatives from Jerusalem to kind of see what was going on, and um, when they got there, Peter had already had this vision that he could eat anything, even though he was a Jew, in the book of Acts, 
And he got to Antioch, and he's eating among the Gentiles and having fellowship with the Gentiles going, Gentiles, you guys are awesome. I love your food. You know, I grew up, and I couldn't eat your food, and now I can eat your food. It's pretty good food. God said I could do it. But then the Jews from Jerusalem came, and Peter drew away from the Gentiles and didn't want to eat with them, didn't want to have anything to do with the Gentile Christians anymore, and he just hung out with the Jewish Christians. And he kind of had this expectation that the Gentile Christians now had to become Jews. And that's, by the way, I'm, I'm, about, I'm about to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians, and you better know where it is. Do you know why you better know where it is? Because we're studying it as a church right now in the W4. So I want you to turn to Galatians 2, and I want to show you the spiritual maturity of Peter. Galatians 2. And go to verse 11. So Paul here is writing about this encounter of what took place in Antioch when Peter was sinning. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles But when they came, the Jews, Christians, he drew back and separated himself. Peter, the apostle, leader of the church, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now I want you to look up here. And I want to show you the spiritual maturity of Peter. Peter's in the wrong. He's just wrong. It's sinful. Paul, Paul says it's not in step with the gospel. It's not in step with the vision that Peter had been given by God with this big blanket and all the animals on it. That everything was clean and he could eat it. So Peter's ignoring what God has told him. He's ignoring what he had been teaching. And for fear of man, he sinned. Now I want you to notice this. Paul steps into the room wherever it was that Peter was with the Jewish Christians who had separated themselves from the Gentile Christians and they were eating. And Paul walks in. Be careful to not read into this too much. Sometimes we think Paul just went around yelling at everybody. I think he may have stepped in the room and said, Hey man, we got to deal with this. And Peter, I, I got to call you out on something. And Peter, here's what I want to say to you. You are wrong about this. And so watch. Church of 2019. We wrestle with this. The Apostle Peter was had sinful doctrine that he was practicing. So what needed to happen? He needed a believer to call him out on it. And so Paul goes in and says, Peter, this is wrong. And watch this. Years later, instead of doing this, because this happens all the time, years later, sometimes when we get called out, our response is, Oh yeah? Well, let me say what you did. And we want to, you know, we want to kind of point out the faults in the other person. Let me tell you what spiritual maturity looks like. 
here is the Apostle Peter, and he's wrong. Leader of the early church, and he's wrong. The Apostle Paul calls him out on it. And years later, instead of Peter just going, whatever, Paul, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You've embarrassed me. You've called me out. Years later, Peter says this, Paul is my beloved brother. He is my divinely loved brother in the faith. Peter responded maturely to say this, I was wrong. My doctrine was wrong. It was wrong. And so instead of just writing Paul off and just changing churches because he was angry, he stayed in ministry partner with the Apostle Paul. And I think, can you imagine their worship together in the presence of King Jesus right now together? So we make such a big deal about stuff. Listen, it is most important to have things right biblically. And if somebody needs to call us out and we're wrong, watch, we adjust to the truth of Scripture that someone's calling us to. We don't attack the other person. We adjust. We don't want truth to adjust our perspective. And so, so the maturity of Peter all these years later is to say this, Paul's my brother and he called me out when I was wrong, and I'm thankful for what he did. And another thing I want to point out here before we move on to the last point is this. It is really interesting that already about 30 years into the church, they, were, they already were seeing these letters that were being written as equal to Scripture. So Peter is affirming here, these letters Paul is writing, they are equal to Isaiah. They are equal to Jeremiah. They are equal to the five books of Moses. He is affirming that they were equal to the prophets. And so he says that here, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Watch this. Paul didn't attain the wisdom. How did he get the wisdom? It was given to him by who? By God. God had given this wisdom. And as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, and there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and he says this, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, watch this, as they do with the other scriptures. Well, you know what Peter's doing here? He is saying, this letter that you've gotten from Paul, it's the Bible. God inspired him to write it. And so watch this. So they... These letters already in the church were deemed as valuable to read for the shaping of the church. And they were passing these letters around amongst themselves. Listen to this, Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also to the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. There's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea that doesn't exist anymore. It's never been found. It's not there. It obviously wasn't supposed to be in our Bible. But they were writing all of these letters to shape the church. Secondly, the reading and the studying of the Bible and these letters was already the established practice of the church 30 years into it. And I think they learned it from Jesus. And again, lastly here, he affirms Paul's writings as scripture. And he says there, some of them are hard to understand. That hard to understand means difficult to interpret, some pretty deep things. And for the last 2,000 years, readers of Paul, teachers of Paul have said the same thing that Peter says. Uh, that's kind of difficult to understand what he says there. All right, lastly, we must be ready 
for the twisting of truth. So look at 16 and 17. Of which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away from the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Church, this world has been, will be, full of people, rampant with them, whose sole aim is to erode the truth of God's Word. And nations will make laws. Nations will do things to to try to diminish the truth of God's Word. And listen to me. Just because nations make laws that are contrary to God's Word doesn't make that law the truth. It doesn't become the truth. The truth is the truth. And so our Supreme Court and I think we're going to see this more and more in the days ahead. Supreme Court, several years ago, uh, made a statement, made a decision that homosexual marriage would be the law of the land in all 50 states. You could do so. That doesn't make that true. Does it rise? Who cares what the Supreme Court says if it's contrary to God's Word? It doesn't elevate it to scriptural truth. And so what do we do? We, we stand with truth. The culture led by Satan himself in the demonic realm are always going to attack God's people and God's word. Always. Not anything new. And so Peter says, listen, you've got to be ready for this twisting of the truth. It's going to be done by ignorant people. It means untrained people, unschooled people. Not only that, they're unstable. They can't stand. They're unbalanced people. And they will twist, watch, twist the Word of God. This word in the Greek, twist, if you remember medieval days, they had it way back in the day as well. But it's when you put somebody on the rack, you take their hands and hold them here, and you would strap their feet, and you would pull their body with ropes this way to dislocate their joints, the bones. He said, this is what false teachers do. They put the truth on the rack and they stretch it and stretch it and stretch it until it dislocates so that they can establish their own truth following their own sinful desires. And they tried to do that. And so, so Peter says, you've got to be ready for it. We need to be ready for it, church. It is going to continue to be the case. So the culture will try to outlaw God's word. Our government may try to outlaw things. We've seen that. This you can listen, I'm just you can say whatever you want to say. This nation was founded on Christian principles in Judeo-Christian understanding. It just was. You can read the literal documents that influenced the founders of this nation. You can read them and it's there. Scriptural understanding influenced all of that. It just, it's just there. So our sophistication in 2019 can say, well, that's not really, it's not, no, that's not really. Yeah, you can. You can read the documents. And this is what twisted people do. They just, they, they, they put the truth there, pull it apart and say, see, it's not true. And God's word stands. It's eternal. And so we stand with it. G.K. Chesterton wrote this in regard to the purity of doctrine. Listen to this. It's short, but it's really good. And we close. Orthodoxy is like walking along a narrow bridge. One step to either side 
is a step of disaster. He gives some examples. Jesus Christ is God and man. God is love and holiness. Christianity is grace and boundaries with morality. Overstress either side of some of these great two-sided truths and at once destructive heresy enters in. One of the most tragic things in life is when a man twists certain Christian truths and Holy Scripture into an excuse and even a reason for doing what he wants to do instead of taking them as guides for doing what God wants and demands a person to do. And so Peter says, listen, this has always been the case. It was the case in the Old Testament. It's the case in the New Testament. It's going to always be the case. You need to be ready for the twisting of truth. And so you stand your guard over your personal integrity, and you do so by knowing God in His Word. And by doing so, our approach to the Scripture must be one that is is, is to guard the truth of Scripture. So I'm going to give you five things. They're going to pop up on the screen here real quickly as we finish. To, to say to you and I, here's how you and I approach the Scripture. Here's how you and I approach the Scripture. So Peter tells us in verse 16, we approach the Scripture knowing that at times there's hard things to understand about it. We've got to wrestle at times to understand and apply some of these things. So he says that in verse 16. There are some things in them, and talking about Paul's writings, that are difficult to understand. So sometimes there's a difficulty of the task of preaching and communicating what's there. Now watch this. I don't think God has hidden texts in the Scripture that, that you and I can never understand them. There's just some of them that are more simple to understand than others, and we've got to wrestle and dig a little bit deeper. deeper. Secondly is this. As we approach the Scripture, we recognize the difficulty of it. But secondly, it tells us of the desperate need for faithful teachers. The Scriptures, I believe, are d- divinely inspired, and they reveal the very mind of God. And can I remind you that the mind of God is a bit different than ours? It's higher. It's deeper. It's more complex. And so some of the things we're, our mind's going to have a hard time with. And so we... Seek to understand. Watch. And this is a great failure of the Western church. We have done down the scripture to just teach the simplicity of, of the texts that are easily understood and avoid the more complex issues. And you can't do that. You can't do that. So that's why you walk through books of the Bible because it forces you to deal with the difficult things that are found in texts. If you don't walk through books of the Bible, it's easier just to go over to a place where you just deal with the simplicity of things. And I could stand up here every Sunday morning and say, y'all are such beautiful people. God loves you. Isn't life great? And just motive, try to do some Christian motivation. And, but sometimes I have to stand up here and say this. We're awful people. And the way we live is unholy. It's unrighteous. It's not God-pleasing. And so all of those things have to be talked about. Righteousness and unrighteousness and sin must be called out. And so, so if all we do is deal with the simple things that just make us feel good and give us some emotions, then we will always be a baby, child-filled spiritual church. I've got proof text of that. Hebrews 5.13 For everyone who lives on milk 
listen to what the writer says, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unskilled. Same word he uses about the false teachers. Untrained. Since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You don't know what the difference between good and evil is? You walk in the truth of God's word and you test things and you know that it's true because the scripture has revealed it. And we know how to do that. So the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's the difficulty of the task of preaching and teaching. There's a desperate need for faithful teachers. Thirdly, there's a danger to this task that if you don't do it right, that it leads to distortion of the truth that leads to destruction. And so Peter says that in 16, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So there's the difficulty of the task. We recognize it. We have to wrestle with it because it contains the mind of God. Secondly, there's a desperate need for faithful teachers. Thirdly, there's a danger of the task that we better teach it as it's there. Fourthly, there's a dedication of the task. You've got to stay on guard. So he says in the first part of 17, You therefore, beloved, you know this beforehand. You know it. So you stay on this. Now watch this as we close. Our culture says this. Relax the standards and there'll be more freedom. Move the boundaries. What once... We're there, and there's more freedom. So allow this drug to be legal now, and we'll have more freedom. Allow this standard about marriage to be relaxed. Let's just move the line a little bit, and we'll have more freedom. But you know what you have? It's just the opposite with God's Word. You move the lines of God's Word. You don't have more freedom. You have more bondage. Because just because in our mind we have moved a line doesn't mean that God's word has moved. Hear me, church, today. And I'm going to be loud about this, but it's coming from a loving heart. We do not get to move the lines of God's word. We don't have that kind of power. So we can relax them and think we have more freedom. We do not. God's word remains the same. And so therefore, loosening of the scriptures in a church doesn't bring more freedom. It brings more bondage. It's just always going to be the case. That's why liberalism in any kind of thing is dangerous. Because it creates this mindset that thinks this, oh, I've got more freedom now. But actually... There used to be a restriction to that. There was a purpose for that restriction because over there in the midst of that, even though the boundary line has been moved here and I'm here, I'm still within the boundary. Well, it's just a new boundary that that man has made, not God has established, and it's outside of God's purpose. And over there always leads to destruction. Always leads to destruction. And so Peter is saying, listen, you stay dedicated to the task of not loosening up the standards of God's word because you're not going to find more freedom there. You're going to have more restrictions and you're going to have more bondage. 
And this forewarning by Peter enables us to be better ready and armed for the fight that is coming. And so the fifth thing is this, is there's a danger to you and I about this task that if we don't know his word, deceivers will lead us astray. And so he closes 17 and says, you take care, and you've got to take care by knowing God's word, that you're not carried away from the error of lawless people and you lose your own stability. This word, take care, means to guard. It's a military term, and Peter is saying we should be anticipating error to come. It's just going to come, so you guard the truth, and you guard it to avoid being carried away. Now let me give one other illustration as we close. So this morning, as every Sunday morning, I rise early, and I've got the Starbucks app on my phone. I arrive at Adriatica Starbucks at 6 a.m. to spend two hours walking through the sermon before I come up here, making sure everything's right. And I showed up at Starbucks Adriatica parking lot this morning, and chaos was in the parking lot. There were about six of us who show up at the same time, 6 a.m. every Sunday morning. We've got our assigned seats that we all sit in, mine's in the front corner, and these other people, I can tell you where they sit. If I were to see them this afternoon, I could tell you, if I saw them somewhere else, I could say, yeah, there's that lady, and she sits right there, and uh, we all have our assigned seats, and we're there for the first hour and a half before anybody else, because who wants to get up that early on a Sunday morning? And so, pulled up this morning, um, I've got the app, I like to order it ahead of time, so that when I show up, it's ready to go, and I had ordered mine. Starbucks had taken my money off my app, and the shift manager had not shown up yet. It was 6 a.m., and all of my, they're not really my friends, but I, I guess we're friends, but they're all out in the parking lot, and nobody knows what to do. Everybody's ordered their coffee, and nobody's inside to make it. And so this one lady, she was freaking out this morning, and she didn't know what to do. She said, nobody's here yet. And I said, are you serious? And I just, you know, I just ordered my, I just ordered my um, drink. Um, and so I'm thinking, what I've come to know, because I live in Collin County, Collin County is only building three things right now. Oil changing places, Montessori schools, and Starbucks. That's all that we're building. Everywhere you look, one of those three things is being built somewhere. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, I can show up somewhere and show, look, I just ordered this. They were closed. They're supposed to be open. Can you give me my drink? And I'll just, you know. So I was going to go to Custer and 380 over here and do my work there. And, but as I drove away from the parking lot today and looked in the mirror, none of my friends knew what to do. Life had thrown them a curve that morning, and life was Sunday morning, 6 a.m. I'm at Starbucks. Oh, my gosh. And now I have to stand in the parking lot, and nobody's inside, and I don't know what to do. Listen, folks, we've got to be the kind of people who know what to do when life throws a curve. And if you can't handle, and I'm serious, there were some panicked moments. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I drink coffee with a bunch of OCD people every Sunday morning. I'm not sure if I do. But, um, but there were some people that didn't know what to do with their lives today. And I just want to remind you, and I, we've, we've got to have a kind of spiritual maturity that gets beyond Starbucks being closed at 610. We've got to be that kind of people.
who have that kind of spiritual maturity that can handle the issues of life. And that's what Peter's been calling us to. All right, let's pray.